Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, welcome to the podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Thanks for being here. Holy crap. It's another Chris Voss Show podcast, and we have one of the most incredible guests I've ever had on the show. Actually, he's a guy I have a huge amount of respect for. I've known him for a gazillion years, at least through the social media age, and uh, he's brilliant. He's smart, and he's uh, fantastically good-looking. Let's put it that way. So, uh, thanks for coming to the show, uh, guys. Tuning in today, uh, be sure to go to thecvpn.com, subscribe to the podcast we have over there. Tell your friends, neighbors, relatives, dogs, cats, pool boys, mistresses. Tell them all to tune in. It's the greatest thing ever. Or you can go to chrisvonspodcastnetwork.com. Today we have Scott Monty of scottmonty.com. He's the executive advisor, speaker, and neoclassical strategist who's recovering. Who is a recovering? Fortune 10 executive. He advises corporate executives and boards on modernizing their culture to meet the changing needs of customers, but does it with examples of history, literature, philosophy, and poetry. Ooh. Together with his ability to trend spot, he shows teams and audiences that the key to our future is understanding timeless wisdom about human nature and focusing on integrity. Yeah, Scott was actually the first executive at Ford Motor Company to lead digital communications and social media. You just have so much on your bio there. Uh, the other thing, great thing about Scott, I should tell you, he's an impeccable dresser and he's a connoisseur of the bow tie. Welcome to the show, Scott. How are you doing, buddy? Thank you, Chris. I'm pleased to be here. It's good to see your shining face and to hear your mellifluous tones coming through the microphone. Well, it's mostly the tones. I've got that radio face. There you so go. That's why I'm a podcaster. <laughs> you know, I mean, Victoria's Secret keeps turning me down to do their show, but uh, here we are. Well, you don't have to worry because they canceled their runway show this year. I They did, and I'm out of work. So this is what I'm doing is my side. This is my side hustle, the podcast. Excellent. And uh, yeah, which is good because, you know, now I can eat those cookies and, and stuff and fat myself up for uh, I don't know. I got to get back in shape for the Chippendales run next year, though. So there's that. <laughs> well, there's always that famous Chris Farley Chippendale clip. If you, if you can live up to that, you know, you'll be fine. I can. Uh, I will never forget the moment I watched that on SNL live. And I was on the ground ha- almost having a heart attack seizure because I could not breathe. I was laughing so hard. Uh, it was that moment when you realized that you had been waiting all of your life for Patrick Swayze and Chris Farley to do that. Like you subconsciously had always wanted that to happen. Sure, sure. Just didn't know it until it happened. And it, it crossed the lexicon of, of uh, you know, coming out into reality. And you're just like, you know, it's it's the same scene as Bob Barker fighting, uh, what's oh, his face, in Happy Gilmore. Adam, uh, yeah. Yeah. You, you never knew you wanted to see... Bob Barker beat the crap out of somebody because he was so nice. But when you saw it, you were just like, that completes me. <laughs> but you That's complete fun. me, Scott, being on the show. Oh, you're you're oh, very me. kind. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Scott, that we haven't covered. I mean, I, I know you from social media. I, I got to know you very early on in social media. You were one of the early pioneers. Um, you, you really helped pave the way for a lot of corporate social media uh, divisions, departments, et cetera, et cetera, and how they were doing their thing. Well, that's very kind of you, uh, Chris. Yeah, I mean, at Ford, we were uh, lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. You know, when I was approached by Ford in late, I guess it was late 2007, um, it was when the company was really on the ropes. It had taken out a $26 billion 
um, what, what CEO Alan Mulally liked to call a home improvement loan uh, to help shore up the company's finances and to finance that plan and get mm-hmm. it in place. Um, and that was two years before the other two U.S. automakers just got blindsided by the carpocalypse. Uh, when it came to that time, and that's when I was there, Ford had already gotten that financing, so we were in, in good shape. Uh, but I joined the company in July of 08, uh, reasoning that by 2010, Ford would be making a comeback. And my estimation was that social media would become mainstream at that point. So you would essentially have this, this kind of intersection of forces at the same time that would just kind of explode, um, which is exactly what did happen. Um, you know, we didn't anticipate the, the whole uh, bailout hearings thing and, and Ford not having to take the bailout. Uh, that was a big shot in the arm for us in terms mm-hmm. of PR and marketing. Um, but it, it gave us the ability to start telling our story to an audience that was paying attention. And back in those days, you know, there really weren't a lot of brands on Twitter or on Facebook or elsewhere. It was corporate blogging uh, to begin with. Uh, and, and we were the first to do a lot of things. We were the first brand to have a Google Plus page. Hey, remember Google Plus. Uh, we were the first uh, car company to reveal a vehicle using Facebook. Um, you know, so we were pioneers in so many ways. And in turn, that kind of made me an internal consultant with the company, somebody who went from department to department, uh, you know, kind of sharing best practices, making sure there was alignment, making sure there was governance. And uh, in turn, you know, hobnob with uh, the C-suite and, and got a lot of insights as to how, uh, how the C-suite works, how a multinational, um, you know, a manufacturing company functions and was able to glean a lot of insights because of that. And after doing that for about six years, I left and went off on my own and, as you say, started a consultancy working specifically with executives to help them get better at this stuff. Nice. And you really, I, I, we, we watched your trajectory uh, over time, and uh, it seemed like I'm, Ford and through you was one of the first to really build a division, you know, a PR social media department within a, within a giant Fortune 100 company, if you will. Yeah, there, there were uh, a few others, a handful of others beforehand, but um, they didn't really um, – hit the mark. I mean, they were just kind of doing kind of under the radar stuff, you know, the, the, the bare minimum. And as a matter of fact, it was a, a colleague of mine, a guy who I had known through his time as the chief blogger at IBM, who then went on to take the role at General Motors, who encouraged me to come to Detroit. And uh, after I got there, I think he was regretting his uh, recommendation because we just kind of left them in the dust. After a while, of course, we all know what happened with GM and the, the bailouts. And But, you know, with, with automotive companies, it's all cyclical. They're, they're all trading places, uh, you know, yeah. every, every year or so. And, and for my part, we were just so pleased to be able to share what we had learned with the rest of the world. Because the idea was, let's bring society along with us. And working for an American and global icon like Ford Motor Company, a Fortune 10 company, it was a great responsibility. And I knew that Henry Ford, back when he put the moving assembly line together, when he, when he adapted that concept for automotive manufacturing, he invited executives in that were competitors and from other industries to study how the automotive moving assembly line worked so that everybody could 
put America on wheels and do the kind of manufacturing with appliances and all the rest that made America and the world really a better place. So I viewed us doing things kind of in that mold. And the thing is with, with Ford Motor Company, the, 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 the specter of Henry Ford still hung over us. You know, it was a, it was a family still is a family run company. Uh, Henry Ford's great grandson, Bill Ford is the executive chairman. Um, it's the only automaker where the founder's name is still on the logo, right? And Henry Ford, of course, is iconic, along with uh, geniuses like Thomas Edison and Steve Jobs, uh, these, these inventors and business geniuses that have really managed to change the face of the world. So that kind of gave us the ability to humanize our approach at Ford and to take a very different approach than any other automaker. And you're right. It has a very storied history. The rising tide lifts all boats. One of the things that Henry Ford did is made it so that his employees could afford his vehicles and uh, a lot of different other things that he did yeah. to really advance the thing. Like you say, uh, getting everyone into the semi, the semi line was a huge invention for the industrialization of, of America and getting us to the next phase of production. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, and you're right that that I remember back in 2008, I had my mortgage company and a few other companies, and it was in real estate, and it was that home equity line, like you say, that was the savior of, of yeah. Ford because um, they taken that out right before the uh, right before the crash, right, and having that was was the real key to their success. And I remember back in that time, the dealerships, I mean, everything came to a standstill. It was very scary. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a point where we really didn't know uh, how the industry was going to fare. And that's why Ford had to go to Congress with GM and Chrysler, was not to ask for the money, but to stand up for the industry and to say, look, these are our competitors, but they are also part of the, uh, the global fabric of, of the supply chain. And if they go under, what does that do to the, to the supply chain that Ford and Toyota and Volkswagen and a whole bunch of automakers rely on? You know, it was a whole ecosystem that needed to be propped up. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things about Scott is Scott is, uh, I like to talk about people when they're right in front of me, uh, but to describe you to our listeners, you're, I'm right here, Chris. <laughs> uh, the one of the things I love about Scott is Scott is very, uh, what's the right word? I'm not even smart enough to say the right words. There he he's, is. he's deep, he's deep thought thinking he's deeply thoughtful that's the word i was going for he's deeply thoughtful uh he's very cerebral uh and intellectual and so i've always loved following him listening to him watching what he writes what he says he, he even has a patreon where you can go to his patreon do you have the what's what's the url to that patreon patreon.com slash scott monty Scott Monty. And of course you can go to his website, scottmonty.com. Um, I love following him. He's one of the thought leaders. I have a very small group of thought leaders that I listen to. I like what they say. I like how they say it, how they present their ideas and all that sort of good stuff. To me, that's the poetry of life for me. Um, you know, I, I don't get normal poetry. I went to public school, so there's that. But, uh, <laughs> So um, let's talk today. We, we talked about, uh, so I, I encourage people to go check him out. Go check out his Patreon everything else. But I brought him on today because we were having a discussion on Facebook about the Sasha Baron Cohen speech that he gave in front of the Anti-Defamation League that's been going around social media. You probably saw it. I, I, it came upon me uh, through the feed, I think in the middle of the night or late at night. Um, I believe Daily Beast was the one who published it first. Um, and it's a great 25-minute uh, speech about 
Facebook, where things are going, uh, conspiracy theories, regulation of social media networks and everything else. And I thought Scott would be a great person to bring on because, you know, we, he and I have both seen the, the um, social media growing up. Can you call it that they grew up? <laughs> it seems more childish now more than ever. Uh, yeah. But, we, you know, we've watched the evolution or de-evolution maybe. I, we, we may have gone up and we're, we're going back down <laughs> the slope. So um, those who haven't seen the video, you can get a link on the com. You can search for the Sasha Baron Cohen speech at ADL. And if you haven't seen it, I really recommend you seeing it. Uh, but I wanted to bring Scott on to, to kind of collaborate with his thoughts on it, where social media is, where it's going, whether or not these uh, companies need to be regulated. Sasha speaks pretty highly about how um, these companies probably need some sort of regulation, how they have kind of unbridled freedom for the most part to support racism, bigotry, uh, pedophilia is out of control on the internet right now. And of course, you know, we've seen people that broadcast uh, videos where they're killing people in live time and it gets shared millions of times across social media. Um, so Scott, I'll, I'll put you on the, on the, uh, on the uh, point there. What did, what did you, uh, what were some of your impressions that came from the, the speech that he gave and well, what you thought about where that goes? Just to preface it, Chris, I think, um, you know, I've been around the social media space for a decade and a half. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the advice that I'm seeing a lot of people give today, and, and look, it's sorely needed advice. It's the same stuff we were saying back in 2009 mm -hmm. or previous to that. And why is that? It's not because it hasn't sunk in, although that's part of it, right? Uh, I, I think th there's a couple of things happening. One is just from a pure human perspective, um, there's a lot of turnover, particularly at agencies where a lot of social media is practiced. A lot of brands turn over the reins to, um, you know, the, the whole social media operation to their agencies to handle. And okay, I get that because it can be a lot of work. But for those brands that are kind of taking a hands-off approach and letting someone else run the show for them, what you're what you're seeing is you're being um, you're being victimized uh, in terms of the high turnover rate. So your, your social media folks, uh, you know, name your agency, you're lucky if they last six months, a year, maybe two years at most. Mm -hmm. So they don't have the, um, the, the, the wealth of experience, the breadth of knowledge of watching all this stuff play out. They're not students of the history of uh, advertising, marketing, and, and PR over the last 20 years. Those of us that actually have lived through it and that are not digital natives uh, that have had to adapt, um, we've seen it happen up close and, and personal. We've made the mistakes. We've seen others make the mistakes as well, and we've learned from those mistakes. So I think that's the first thing, is that, that there's this human turnover, uh, which is natural, uh, and it's being relied on. The I think... I th and it's because these companies don't take social media seriously. I see this in my relationships with PR agencies. It's like four to six months. I, I'm dealing with somebody new. Uh, even worse, I'm writing about this in my book and advice to PR agencies. Uh, they No one ever recovers the email and relationships that are in that person's email when they leave. Right. And they seem to hire a lot of chewing gum people that they're just, they're, this isn't their career. This is their kind of like, summer job <laughs> yeah, we're just kind of treading water uh waiting for the next big thing to come along. yeah i mean they they hire sometimes the cheapest labor they can right. uh with the highest turnover and is is that because they don't just give it i mean why is that do they well, do... I, 
I think it's for a couple of reasons. One, I think social media has never been given the proper due um, that, that it should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, if, if practiced well, it's more strategic than tactical. Um, and it can live beyond a single silo within the company. It should live beyond a single silo within the company. Uh, you know, the whole process of digital transformation that we hear a lot of people talking about, a lot of, uh, you know, big consultancies are, are working on that. Digital transformation goes across the enterprise and so should social. That's an undergirding of digital transformation. You should be learning about what your customers are saying, uh, improving your products, uh, giving feedback to your legal team and your IT team, um, obviously customer care and all the rest. There, there's a way to make it part of the ecosystem rather than, uh, hey, 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 intern, hey, kid, here's a few tweets you need to put out. Because this is the other part of the thing. When and, and largely when social media started out, it was PR and communications agencies that were running it. Gradually, marketing got wind of it. And when the likes of Facebook and Twitter and all the rest started putting advertising onto their platforms, well, that's when marketing got to step up with the budget. And of course, he with the largest budget is going to win the departmental fight, no question. <laughs> um, but in doing so, What's happened is social media has gone from this earned media community building kind of thing that it initially was under PR and communications and has become more of an advertising platform. Uh, And we've seen the same thing play out that we saw on television and then on the early uh, internet with banner ads and the likes where it's the same model where you're just talking at people. You're shoving content in front of them. You're paying for it to get in front of them and you're walking away. For the most part, you know, there are some brands that do uh, some some fairly good jobs at uh, community management. But by and large, the community management that they do is putting out fires uh, on Twitter, you know, responding to to crises um, or uh, handling customer service uh, uh, inquiries that come in on Facebook, on Instagram, on, on Twitter. So it's become a very, uh, you know, kind of bifurcated thing where it's either um, handling complaints or pushing content, right? And when you do those two things, what's the incentive for the agency? It's to minimize, or it's to maximize the margin, right? To minimize your spend on it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're going to spend on media and you're going to pick up a percentage of the media buy that you get, but you also have a budget allocated for these other activities. And more and more, we're seeing agencies, not just in social, but marketing in general, getting squeezed for their margins and they don't have anywhere to move. Yeah. So of course they're going to hire the cheapest people. Of course they're going to work them hard. Of course you're going to see a lot of turnover, lather, rinse and repeat. Now this is where we are. Yeah. And the, what's really sad to me is a lot of the relationships are lost. Relationships is a huge thing. I'm sure to you, both you and I, uh, and the relationships are lost. And, and I, I've literally had relationships for years with people at, at, a, uh, at a PR agency or a, as a major company. And suddenly my emails aren't getting returned. And, uh, you know, very rarely I'm lucky enough where there'll be a bounce back email that says, hey, I've left the company. But that's like super rare. Right. Um, and so finally I'll just reach out and around to... Uh, the company and be like, Hey man, is Joe Smith still there? Cause I was talking to him and I keep emailing him and he never answers They're like, Oh no, Joe Smith left. And you're like, so let me get this straight. You had uh, a major company pay you as a PR agency. Sometimes it's the company itself. Um, and they built all these wonderful PR relationships 
inside, and this is the thing I'm talking about in my books. So, um, and you have all these relationships that are in that email because that's really where most of my relationships are these days. Uh, and they're just gone. Like no one recovers the email when that employee leaves. I guess no one gets the password. No one, no one even gives a care to it. It's just tossed away. And the thing that kills me is they're in some board meeting right now trying to figure out how they can make more money marketing when right. they've thrown away this whole database that's, that's in that email, these people. That's absolutely it. And, and I think what you've seen uh, also is the, the whole influencer thing. Yeah. Um, again, that's been handed over to marketing because it's more of a contractual relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now you get the history of the contract and how much you paid the influencer to do their thing. But to me, you know, it, it's the difference between influencer relations and influencer marketing. And I know mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of splitting hairs here. But again, this is the difference between PR handling it or communications handling it and marketing handling it. And mm-hmm. marketing views it very much as a transaction because that's how they've, that's how they bought media for years, right? And they view influencers as nothing more than uh, a celebrity type uh, media buy as a sponsorship. Mm-hmm. And to your point, it's those relationships that were developed that really mattered. Yeah. You know, I, we, we used to have bloggers in all the time at Ford Motor Company, and I took great pride in that program and developed relationships with as many of the bloggers as I could. Our agencies were the ones that reached out to them and, and you know, did all the, the footwork and, and really did the lion's share of getting them there. But when they were there, you know, I made sure I spent time with each one of these people and built relationships on the ground. And to your point, walked away from Ford. And a lot of those relationships walked with me and we're still in touch. You know, we still interact online and they're, and they, they still get contacted by the company, but they go, you know, it's just not the same since you left. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I followed Ford a lot because of you. Uh, and same thing with my good friend, Robert Scoble. I, I, if anybody ever asked me, you know, where, where should we go for, um, you know, computer, cloud services, I'd say Rackspace because my friend Robert Scoble works there. Right. Um, you know, I would, I'm not, I, honestly, I'm a BMW fan uh, and I have a lot of respect for the Ford brand, and, and, but I would follow the Ford brand because you were always talking about it and posting about it um, and all the fun things. One of the things I always remember you posted, I, I think this might have been after you left, but you posted a picture where they got a Ford Mustang on top of the Empire State Building. And uh, I believe it was the Empire State Building, wasn't it? Right. That, that's, where, that's where the launch started <laughs> out in 1964. Yeah. And on the 50th anniversary in 2014, uh, that's where yeah. That was one of those moments I'll never forget. But th- these are the people who lead us through things. And I do have smart uh, PR agents, agency employees that they follow me. They take their database with them, and they just go from agency to agency and stuff. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm still in the age of where people still treat social media like a stupid stepchild. Like you'll have somebody that's paying you to consult with them. And all of a sudden they'll be like, Hey, Chris, uh, we're going to cut your services. Uh, we found somebody to work for us. Oh, really? Who? Um, yeah. Our nephew just uh, graduated high school and we're going to put him in charge of the social media account. <laughs> so, so typical. I know. I know. <laughs> And, and then they wonder why they don't get the results that they oh, were yeah. promised or that, that they yeah. see from other brands. Well, if you're going to do this well, it starts with a well-thought-out strategy. Yeah. 
and and it has to it has to maintain its cohesion. It, it can't be somebody that just you know kind of shows up part time or doesn't understand the broader implications to the business. You know, there's there's a lot of moving parts here. Yeah, and I let somebody list out exactly like everything that a social media manager does. And to me, that was it's a little more granular than the stuff I used to do at Ford because I was more at an executive level. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, everything from you know, art direction to coding to uh, content creation and copywriting. And, you know, I mean, it, it really becomes the entire uh, span of what marketing is today, all crammed into this little window that everybody knows of social. Mm-hmm. But it's so much more than just, hey, you know, I got a nephew who tweets if you're doing it right. Yeah. It's, and it's amazing to me how many, I don't, I don't know what's going on because like you, I grew up in the age of In Search of Excellent, Tom Peters. Uh, who helped really, you know, build me a lot of companies with his stuff. He almost bankrupted me on some of his ideas, though. He was like 50-50. Um, and uh, evidently people that document things that don't actually do them aren't always right. It's kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, I have huge admiration for Tom, and uh, I wouldn't be where I was today without him. Uh, but in Search of Excellence, you remember how powerful that book was, and it changed a lot of mindsets of corporate America in – the customer is number one and all that sort of stuff. Now things have just really flipped. I mean, um, one of the things I'm talking about in my book is, is these, these, uh, these bots now, these bots, they res- uh, what are they called? The response bots? Yeah. Um, bots and response bots. And all yeah. That. The, the ones on like Facebook and different things, they are, I mean, of all the polling I've done with them and communicating with companies, like 95% of them are garbage. You, you never hear from the company. It, it just seems to be an excuse to like be like, yeah, we'll get back to you. Yeah, we responded, so yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll get back to you with a fish response. It's, it's basically the modern-day uh, hold music. Yeah, there you go. But there it's you go. to a humanized voice. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you're trying to fake people out with a bot, you're not really doing it right. Yeah. I mean, you, you can acknowledge that it's a chat, but there's nothing wrong with that. If, if you want to use technology to help you manage, uh, you know, your operations. Okay, fine. But did you see the, um, the there was, I, I guess it was about two years ago or so, um, maybe three, uh, Sundar Pichai, the uh, CEO of Google, um, had a, a live demonstration of, of Google Home. Uh, or, or of the the, the Google automated uh, for for business kind of thing, where he made a call uh, to a um, it was a hair salon or something like that, and the person on the other end of the line didn't know they were talking with a bot that was trying to set up the appointment for oh yeah uh, for him, and it was that. freaky. Yeah, it was really freaky, and it's like, all right, what are the ethical implications there? What's it? What's a business responsible for? in terms of helping their customer or helping, you know, the person on the other end of the line understand that they're not actually dealing with a real human being, mm-hmm. um, you know, because that can go so far and, you know, there's going to be a lot more of that because AI and automation and all the rest, that's going to be doing a lot more in the future. What, what are the responsibilities? What are the ethical implications there uh, for people that think they're dealing with another human being? And I, I've been fooled. I don't know about you, but I've been on websites and I've been fooled that I was talking to real human beings. And when I figured out it was a bot, I was not happy, especially if I was a customer. That's the thing. That's the thing. It's what, and, and this comes right down to um, 
one of my great theories, what great, one of my theories of the world is that 90% of all business problems are communications based. You know, if only we could explain ourselves better, if we could do a better job of laying things out, we wouldn't be in the jam we're in so many times. And, and the example that you just gave where you were pissed off after figuring out that you weren't dealing with a human when you thought you were, if they just explained it up front, that would have just brought your blood pressure down uh, commensurately. Yeah. Well, they've created this, they create this maze now. I can think of my bank does that. Uh, bank of America, uh, Geico is known for that. Uh, Geico has hidden their, their contact phone number. And I've been with Geico for like 10, 15 years or something. Uh, I just really like that lizard. I don't know why I'm just into the lizard. Um, I mean the progressive chick, she's cool, but she just doesn't do it for me. Like the lizard. I don't know why. Maybe, uh, I don't know. So brain, I have a lizard. Is that what it is? It's my lizard brain. It's my caveman. That, that may be well. I did. You know, I just, I just have this contact with whatever crawled up out of the primordial soup of my evolution. Well, and, and, you know, Chris, that, that's funny because I, that's part of my supposition. You know, you, you announced in the intro that, you know, I'm into history and literature and all the rest. The, the point is, the, the reason I keep coming back to that is because we see the same kinds of things happening, not only in business, but just in society mm-hmm. over and over again. And we, we see the same mistakes being made. We see human nature just kind of playing itself out century after century. Mm-hmm. And history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does rhyme, right? And if you're ready for that, if you understand the patterns and you know exactly what human nature is up to, then you'll be able to predict what's going to happen in the future, regardless of what the platform is, Mm -hmm. which gets us back to Sasha Baron Cohen and, and Mark Zuckerberg, because I think Facebook could have avoided a lot of this if Mark Zuckerberg just stayed and, and finished out at Harvard and, <laughs> and, and worked on his psychology degree or something to understand more of mm-hmm. human nature. Um, and, and I don't think anyone, whether they're from Google, Twitter, Facebook, or wherever, is a, um, an intentionally bad actor. I, I, I don't ascribe any of this to any kind of evil motive. I think it's just people that have tried to do the right thing, but really haven't been prepared for the consequences. Mm-hmm. Haven't thought this through to its ultimate conclusion. Um, the question now is, as Sasha Baron Cohen has put it, when confronted with this, when the reality now is, okay, here's what we're dealing with, with autocrats and propaganda and um, true fake news. If, mm-hmm. if you get my drift there. Um, now that we know it's being promulgated on these sites, now what do you do about it, mm-hmm. right? This is what's going to make the difference between what I would, would describe as, as bad actors versus uh, just naive actors. Yeah. And, and would you say it's Mark Zuckerberg's uh, naivete as, as sort in his education, or is part of it the balance between that and the financial aspect of it? Like we're a company, we have to make money, I'm beholden to shareholders, and, you know, now he's now it's kind of it seems to have turned the page in the Trump era is that he's beholden to politics because Trump has played. And I'm not being political here. I mean, I think this has been, you know, he's he said it. I mean, they're, they're starting to use um, social media as a battle axe for the conservative right. And they're demanding, you know, hey, we, we need to be listened to. And he's been very angry sometimes when white nationalist sites have been kicked off of these platforms. Yeah, and I think in in some ways they've been um, 
over responsive or over sensitive mm-hmm. uh, on, on some of these things. They've, they've, they've wanted to go out of their way to make sure that they don't yeah. appear to be biased. Yeah. And, and I get that, especially from a communications perspective, I get it. Um, but at, you know, at any point, Mark Zuckerberg, because he controls the voting shares of that board, he could make a unilateral decision mm-hmm. to reverse course, mm-hmm. right? Even if it's going to take a hit for a couple of quarters, if he stands up and says, look, we are affecting one third of the world's population mm-hmm. with our platforms, uh, between WhatsApp, Instagram, uh, and Facebook and messenger, um, we owe it to society to do the right thing, mm-hmm. to, to pause here and really understand what the implications are and to really take stock of what we need to do going forward. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are any easy solutions. You know, I, I, I said a few weeks ago, well, just stop political advertising. Well, that, that you know, flows over into issues-based uh, advertising, things like climate change and um, yeah, conspiracy, domestic violence and stuff like that. You don't want to harm you know, players that are out there trying to do good from that perspective. But at the same time, just put a halt on paid political advertising for right now. Mm-hmm. You can figure this out. And certainly through the 2020 elections. I mean, that's yeah. really where it comes down. You know, we're seeing this play out once again and didn't even have to go farther back in history for this, except to 2016 when, when you saw the meddling in the election and what was done. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you would think that they would be the first people that would, 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 that would put up and saying, you know, we screwed this up once. We're going to take a little bit more time to figure this out. Um, props to Jack at Twitter for standing up and saying, you know, we're not getting involved in this. Uh, Google has since come out and they're dialing stuff back. And of course, um, you know, I'm not being a political basher here, but the conservative, the conservatives on Twitter, as soon as uh, I saw um, Google put out, you know, some new standards about how where you can't micro target as much, mm-hmm. you know, they started pounding the table about how we're being censored, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, you know, this is one of the voices they have to listen to and, and demand. And, you know, everyone wants a voice at the table. Um, and the big challenge is that was one of the other reasons I wanted to have you on the show for the intellectual uh, input was, uh, you know, people are, people sometimes get into the what aboutism of this, of, of like, well, how, how far do you go in banning or, or, or censoring or how far do you go in doing whatever? I liked Sasha, Sasha Baron, and I've, I've thought about it a lot. Sasha Baron Cohen, I think, puts forth the best sort of procedures that, you know, there's certain, and I, I talked about this yesterday in my podcast about, I pretty much did a whole podcast on the Sasha thing. I believe there are certain tenable things that we can, we can decide are very despicable in society. In fact, we've created laws to establish that those are despicable pedophilia, violence against people, hate crimes, racism, et cetera, et cetera. We've already decided as a society that those things are improper. So why are we allowing those things to run rampant on Facebook and social media? Um, the genocide in Miramar was a, was a huge thing that you would think that Facebook would have stepped back from and gone, wow, we really need to think how we're impacting the world. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he called Myanmar out. Uh, in his uh, speech specifically. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a couple of things that stood out to me is that, um, you know, he said, um, uh, whereas uh, one, one thing he said that freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's one of those throwaway phrases, but when you really pick it apart, 
it makes a lot of sense. You know, this automatic knee jerk response, Oh, we're being censored. No, you're not. Nobody's stopping you from saying these things. I think what we want to see stopped is we want to stop the amplification of this, the needless and dangerous amplification of it. You know, you can see some crazy guy standing on a soapbox on the corner of a street who's ranting and raving for 20 minutes as traffic goes by. Nobody's stopping him. You've been driving by my corner, huh? (laughs) Now we know what you do on the weekends. Um, Nobody stops somebody like that. But as soon as they go and they want to broadcast something like that, they want to take it and and take that hatred and, and put it out there. That's when society rightfully so I think has a problem with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's the, the difference, as he says, of freedom of speech and freedom of reach. Yeah. And, and, and I, I I mean, I, I can, you know, I had, I had, I got in an argument and tomorrow I'm going to have a gentleman on who's a a good debater on this, who uh, he usually throws out a lot of whataboutisms and he's very debating and uh, sort of person. He runs a comedy show that's uh, does a lot of debating over love and relationships. And so, and he does comedy on, so he's very funny, but you know, he was giving me a lot of whataboutisms on Facebook when we were trying to talk about this. And I'm like, well, Here's the problem with what aboutisms is how low do you go? Do you go, well, pedophilias need to have a voice too, you know, I mean, and maybe, maybe Hitler, you know, maybe he did have something against the Jews and we should just let him run. I mean, how, how far do you go down the wormhole or where do you stop or where do you decide uh, the the things are that we need to take care of? Um, The one thing he talks about is objective fact an objective truth. And I think we can, I think, well, I assume we can all agree. Maybe it's my delusion um, that in this world of conspiracy theories, I mean, I've seen you talk about fascism. We've talked about fascism, I think privately Um, this conspiracy theories, the dissolution of truth, the ability to make people question reality and truth. Uh, this is how fascism rises. This is how governments are overthrown, how autocrats rise, fascism works. Um, you know, the dear leader sort of aspect, but making people that where they don't believe what they see. I mean, the man's actually known for saying that to a group in his rally, but uh, this isn't just his playbook. This is every autocrat's playbook in history. Um, this, is, you know, this is right out of uh, George Orwell's 1984. Mm-hmm. There you go. You know, uh, the, the, the leader instructed you not to believe the facts that were from- yep. Or your very eyes. It's not what you see and think. It's what the party tells you. That's right. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. It's happened. What is it? Was it 1984? And it's 19, uh, 2018. God, I'm getting old. Yeah. Um, and I remember when that book came around. I remember it was 1984. You probably do. Although I don't want to date you. You're, you're clearly much younger and better shape than I am. Uh, <laughs> at least you look at that way, Scott. I'm actually so. 83. I have <laughs> There's a painting of me up in the attic. You yeah, what do you do? Do you inject formaldehyde into your veins or something at night? Um, are you on that uh, Michael Jackson uh, thing, cryogenic whatever thing? Yeah, I sleep in the uh, in, in the bariatric chamber. There you go. There you go. Good for you, man. Uh, I need to order me up one of those. But uh, so, where do we go from here, Scott? How do we how do we solve this problem? How do we get back the truth and objective truth and in honesty, if, if there is a well, you get back. I know, I know. Um, I, you know, uh, I'll go back to, uh, our and friend. I'm putting on the saw on you. So the no, whole world hey, is waiting and watching on your bated breath. 
clearly I'm going to have to run for office after this. Um, I'll vote for you. You got hey, me. Sasha Baron Cohen said uh, it's it's time for a fundamental rethink of social media mm-hmm. and how it spreads hate and lies. And I think that's um, that's exactly right. And to me, what it's meant is spending less time online, which is difficult when you're when you're a solo practitioner and your connection to the outside world is social media. Um, but it means closing the computer. It means getting more active in one-to-one conversations. For me, I've doubled down on my email newsletter and Patreon, you know, where I'm, I'm, uh, you know, uh, talking about more of the things that I think are important. Yeah. Um, and, and then the other thing is, is reading, you know, I think we could do with a lot more book reading and I don't care if you get it on a Kindle or if you get it off the, the shelf of a library or whatever. I mean, you can see behind me, uh, I take reading seriously mm-hmm. and, and again, this is why I think we all need to understand history a little better because we're forgetting these things. We, we forget the atrocities. We forget the mistakes. Yeah. We forget how leaders of the past have functioned. You know, I think there's great leadership uh, opportunities for us to learn from the great leaders of history and, and from the leaders of, of, the, uh, of, of the pages of literature. Um, so I think if we did a little more old-fashioned reading mm-hmm. and reflection – Right. Because everything we do online now, it's like you got to have a knee jerk response to something. You got to be ready with a quip, an insult or uh, an attaboy kind of thing Mm -hmm. Uh, and and blame that on the share or the retweet button. Um, And this is this is what, you know, these these social media companies that Sasha talks about are how they're manipulating us. I mean, they their algorithms, you know, monitor emotion, they monitor monitor triggers. And so they they amplify that up through your systems when it becomes a highly emotional dramatized, they can see a lot of activities going on and something and they push it to the top. And, and and it takes a great deal of self discipline to get around this stuff. I mean, just this morning I saw um, a couple of hashtags on Twitter. One was Trump cheats and another had to do with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh, I think Sarah is a liar or something like that. Um, She's being called a liar. Yeah. 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 She hates being called a liar. In the, uh, well, I, I don't know if you do profanity on your show. You but, can be as profane as you want. Okay. I mean, so there's that famous scene in liar, liar with Jim Carrey yeah. where he's got this criminal that keeps calling him to get out of, uh, to get out of, uh, out of jail or, or get out of the jam he's in. And, and Jim Carrey's secretary says, uh, you know, snake is on the line. Uh, he's just held up an ATM at knife point. He wants to know if you have any legal advice for him. And Jim Carrey grabs the phone. He holds it away from his, uh, from, from, from his mouth. And he screams into the phone, stop breaking the law. asshole!" <laughs> so if you don't want to have these things kind of pointed your way, don't do the things that are responsible for them. Yeah. My point with those, with seeing those hashtags like that and, you know, last week during the impeachment hearings, there were more. It's easy to jump into the fray and add to, you know, the, 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 the people that are trying to pick holes at these people. What is it going to matter at the end of the day? Yeah, that's true. That you get recognized with a like or a retweet. I mean, is that really going to affect your life versus not engaging and not giving way to that anger and hatred? It's, you know, the classic philosophy of Yoda. Mm-hmm. Right. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to the dark side. Mm-hmm. It's, it's simple wisdom like that. That's you know, so it's, it's funny. I could hear the voice when you said that too. I don't want, I, 
I, I don't want to uh, force it here. It's one of those. I, I it's one of those voices where when you say right. it, you can like you can hear Samuel Jackson hear you know saying right. his right. lines. Um, you As know, you, so this reading thing. You want to hear Morgan Freeman saying it? Yeah. So this reading thing um, on my PS4 Pro. My which video game is that? Reading is that the? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that's the problem you have with this generation. You know, my mom was a teacher for twenty twenty five years. Oh, wow. And over. All those years, she was going through, uh, here in Utah, uh, one of the problems you had was the metro area, of course, is a city area, but the rest of Utah was cattle farming, farming, and stuff, and they didn't get college. They didn't understand, well, you want to go to college, you can milk cows. There's nothing wrong with milking cows, um, but they would constantly dial back the education budget for my mom and you know sometimes i talk to my mom she's being like she's like can we refinance the house because i need some more money per month and i'm like what do you need money for and she goes i'm spending about 250 bucks a month of my own money uh to pay for supplies for the school like what i know and she's like yeah they won't they they dial it back they doubled our class size i remember i remember when they took her class size they practically just doubled it and she's like i can't and and my mom loved these kids God bless her, because I would have probably killed them all. Um, not really. I like kids, but uh, I would have just quit. <laughs> but uh, it's it's a lot of work to be a teacher and uh, or a parent, and uh, neither of which I am clearly. Uh, and so she would she would you know just every year I'd hear about you know well the legislature took more money away and we have less to work for and we're trying to jump through all these hoops and the regulations. We're just trying to educate some damn kids here. And I remember her telling me just like, it was a theme over 20 years that we are raising a generation that's going to be dumber and stupider. And, and she didn't mean that mean way, but just uneducated, ignorant, not aware of, you know, they took civics out of school histories and and history sometimes. Uh, What was it else? Also banned. I think you were a band member, weren't you? Yes, I was. So was I played trumpet, but Never got, man, that was one of those things that was never going to get me laid. Um, but that's me personally. Uh, the, uh, but no, I was in band. Uh, but you know, a lot of those things that you learn, I mean, you look at, you look at, I mean, you, you, you're like one of my friends who was a CEO of a company who came from a literature, uh, background. Um, and he went to college for literature and for, um, arts, liberal arts. And, you know, he would always talk about how much that really influenced his, um, his ability to be a good CEO. Uh, what was it? Uh, Steve Jobs, when he went to college, and the only thing he was really interested was in uh, uh, what's it, what's the art of that thing called fonts, basically, but the art of s- the script or, or writing or whatever. And they say that was the thing that he used that really made Mac work initially was the you know the ability for people to and write and, and document and create fonts and you yeah. know and. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, what's what's the gun that is now at Mark Zuckerberg's head is, you know, he's got almost 50 uh, attorney generals now that are investigating through a monopoly. Yeah. So it's not just the politi- politics of someone twittering at him from the White House. It's now AGs that are involved in the process. Uh, Google is seeing the same sort of uh, attacks, uh, monopoly that are being used, I think, in a political sense. Um, I think Twitter's definitely been under pressure you've seen all their ceos i think begging at the white house or um negotiating at the white house trying to balance everything do they need to just say i don't know we're just going to do things our way and not make everyone happy or 
Um, I mean, Jack, Jack seems to have done pretty well with his announcement that we're just not going to get in it. So we're out of the trap for the most part. I mean, you can sling your arrows, but you have to sling them on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I think he certainly gets the credit for being the first mover there and doing what Facebook still hasn't decided to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the jury's out as to whether they will. I've, I've seen some pundits say, well, maybe before Thanksgiving, maybe before Christmas, whatever. Don't hold your breath. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what matters is doing the right thing because it's the right thing, not because you've been pressured by uh, others in your industry. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it turns out to be the right thing uh, operationally for Twitter remains to be seen. But I think Jack's spirit, you know, where, where it's been devoid of so many other things about denouncing, um, you know, uh, fascists or uh, hate crimes or things like that, where he's had the opportunity to step up and has not, um, or, or to create an edit function. Um, <laughs> he, he's, he certainly appears to have done the right thing this time around. So we'll see how it, it takes. But ultimately, what you've got with Facebook is at least they're being consistent with their brand. You know, they're they, throwing elections consistently, is that what you're saying? Pretty much. I, I mean, they've, they've constantly overstepped their bounds, apologized, overstepped their bounds again, apologized some more. They've lived by apology. It's mm-hmm. been, this, you know, apology as a strategy. And there's no trust for Facebook anymore, which oh, is why yeah. I kind of roll my eyes and say, hey, good luck getting them to actually do anything about this. Um, I don't know if they will. Um, and I view it very cynically, and I'm sorry that it's come to that. I'm sorry that I have to be that cynical about it. But that's exactly what they've proven them, themselves to be. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting, too. It almost seems like Mark Zuckerberg's attitude is he will drag us to where he wants us to go. I remember, and I'm sure you do, too, uh, years ago when he came out with the statement, I believe it was one of the Facebook 8 meetings that they face, face 8 or whatever the hell it's called. Um, and he uh, stated that privacy is dead. And at that time, we all didn't know that we our frog was boiled yet. We were kind of in denial about it. And everyone was like angry. Like, well, face privacy is not dead. No, privacy is fine. Meanwhile, Edward, you know, Snowden's going, no, it's really dead. <laughs> um, and, and now we just kind of accept that. And it's kind of like he was the early prophet who got the arrows who went, well, you know, whatever. And I, I think we do live in an enlightened age and it becomes more and more unenlightened, I guess, if you will. One of my favorite sayings that I, I think I, I uh, changed, I don't know, I haven't done enough research to see if it's mine yet, but the, one of my favorite sayings is, the one thing man can learn from history is that man never learns from his history. And I like the ironicness of that because yeah. um, it goes in a cyclical motion. Yeah. But, uh, you know, getting back to truth and, and uh, you know, it's interesting to me, there are certain if I go onto network TV, CBS, uh, whatever place over the air, um, under FCC regulations, uh, there are certain words that they cannot use before a certain time period. Mm-hmm. But social media has got free freaking reign as to whatever they want to put out there 24 seven. And, uh, you know, I remember the dilemma. I, I, I don't know what you've done with your children, but I remember the dilemma of my religious brother who, uh, was just horrified to ever let his kids get anywhere near the internet, uh, even up into their teens. I mean, you finally let them on Instagram, but, and I, and me, I, I don't have children as a parent, but for me, I, I would have share the same horrification of like, 
you know, I, I know what's on there and where it can go and, uh, and where do these innocent minds will go. And, and maybe there shouldn't be, you know, the ability for certain impressionable young minds, especially those who are wandering through that age of teenagedom, trying to find themselves. I was recently reading about some young girl who was kind of lost. She broke up with her boyfriend. She was, so she was kind of angry and she was young and, and the people who picked her up was a white nationalist group. And so she, for 10 years, she ran with that as a, as a, as a person of hate. <clears throat> and, uh, I guess when, you know, she finally found Jesus or something, I don't know, but, uh, you know, how do we keep these impressionable young minds? Because that reach is being used for recruitment for these ugly areas of society that want to build up these people and validate, you know, your anger and your hate and your disassociation with life or, or, your, or yeah. your anger at it. And they give you that vehicle and they give you a group of people to go, Hey, you're as crazy as we are. So you're right. You know? <laughs> um, and it's, it's not just the young minds either. It's any impression. Yeah. And, and, and we see that in targeting towards the old people who, 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 uh, the old people, that was kind of rude. Um, people of people who aren't as internet savvy, who are in their age, uh, older ages. And, and of course what we're seeing out of that is, well, it, I guess social media technically plays to everyone's prejudice when it comes down to it. Yeah. Um, everybody's got a bias one way or another. Mm -hmm. And there, there have always been bad actors in history. Just have, I mean, I think by and large human beings are, are good and kind and want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And there's maybe a, you know, one to 3% of humans that are just not so nice. <laughs> and and that's the way it's always been. And, 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 power of numbers. You know, we've always survived because the majority wins. Well, what mm -hmm. happens when you've got the ability to take that 1% and to amplify it so that it seems like it's 90%? Good point. This is where we are right now. And this is why this technology, if not checked, can be very dangerous. And, and again, this gets back to my, my earlier supposition that did the uh, progenitors of this technology really think through where it was going to go. If they knew human nature, if they knew the extreme potentials on either end of human nature, they could have predicted this. And, you know, can you unring the bell? Are there things that can be put into place now that can help staunch some of this and, and to restrict it? Um, you know, look, one would hope that with AI, with automation, that we're able to, to nip some of this stuff in the bud. Um, but again, there are nuances in the human language, nuances in how things are taken. Um, you know, it's going to get really messy before it actually. Uh, and I think, I think Sasha Baron Cohen, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I think Sasha Baron Cohen has a, has a, has a good point. These guys got plenty of money and they've got the smartest people that are bringing AI on the thing, but their attitude right now, especially what Mark Zuckerberg has been trying to push, like it is Georgia's speech uh, is is that, you know, we're, we're, we're just going to try and give everyone voices. And of course, you know, not having to hire 50 million moderators um, helps the bottom line. And I think more and more, what really came out of me in the Sasha thing was more and more realizing that we're the mouse in the cheese maze and that their algorithms are now designed to control us. Um, you know, I came up through the YouTube era where if I put up a great video, I could get it trending. And it was just the quality of the video, what I did, what I said, and have it being topical, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then things change. The same thing with Twitter and Facebook and other things. Uh, I can have an influence and control them. Uh, and then it came to where the algorithms, al- algorithms came in. Um, and then it became more manipulative on their site. Now, when you go to trending on YouTube, a lot of it's technically paid advertisements or paid promotions. Um, and, you know, pushing their thing. And so it kind of went from this democratization of where all of us could decide that, hey, this government's bad or, hey, this is a really great video or music to where now, like you say, and especially not just with algorithms, but with bots, um, you can take that 1% of the darkest part of the Internet and turn it into the loudest voices in the room yeah, and the most influential. And they can, because of that reach, they can find the most um, weakest of minds that will go, hey, that sounds like a great boat I'll get on. It looks great because it's the loudest voice in the room. So therefore, it must have some sort of authority of, uh, of uh, I don't know, <laughs> of being right, I suppose. Well, you know, when, when the incentive is to simply drive eyeballs because it's an advertising-driven uh, marketplace, um, you've got to wonder whether we've completely turned – uh, turn this thing on its head and, and if there's an opportunity to right the ship, because here's the thing um, in a study last year, people said they'd be willing to give up all their personal data to a brand for 150 bucks, <laughs> 150 bucks to give, to give up your, all of your PII to a brand. I don't think that's right by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, some people want to put a price on anything. Yeah, I would go for 200. <laughs> you're a fine discerning gentleman. Yes, I, know. I, I value myself highly and maybe but, 250 225. So here's the thing at, at the same time, we're seeing people being unwilling to pay for news. They just expect that it's always free mm-hmm. so between getting your news for free and getting all of your social networking for free. We've, we've painted ourselves into a corner where it's just the expectation that all of this just flows freely. Well, guess what? And, and uh, I think Scott Galloway uh, said this earlier. Advertising is a tax that the poor pay. If you can't afford to have a, a paid service, whether it's a newspaper or ad-free Hulu or whatever it is, the advertising is the tax you pay. Mm-hmm. We need to come up with a model. And I know um, Jimmy Wales has just done this with, with a new social network, the WT mm-hmm. uh, social network. Um, where there's an option for people who want to pay $100 a year to join this social network that will never have ads and will never do anything with your private information. Mm-hmm. We need to move toward a model like that, where like the utilities you pay for, like your phone, like mm-hmm. your electricity, like your, your cable or your streaming services, you know, it's a form of a utility. And we need to treat it and regulate it that way. At the same time, we need to think about our local news Certainly the national news is doing well, but the local news is really where it matters. We need and they're really struggling too. Well, it, a lot of them are, yeah. But yeah. You know, the big ones, uh, Wall Street Journal, New York yeah. Times, Washington Post, they're doing okay. Um, I know even the LA Times is struggling. Yeah, um, the, a lot of the local ones are shutting down in some of the smaller cities. That's the thing, yeah. The, the local news is where we need more attention and where it really matters to people, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're having this dialogue at the local level, where they're interested in uh, you know, their schools and their, their town council races and different things like that. We need to get people interested in being, civic, in, in being civic-minded once again. And that goes part and parcel with helping them understand history, get interested in reading, 
you know, in some ways, you know, if the entire electrical grid just blew up uh, and it was some kind of apocalyptic uh, kind of film, we might do, it might get pretty bad at first, but we actually might come out of it a lot better. We'd be, it'd be like the purge. People would be murdering yeah. each other for Wi-Fi. <laughs> I don't know if you do that as a disciplinary thing to your kids, but I love this age where you can just discipline your kids by like, you don't have to spank them or anything anymore. You just take away the Wi-Fi and you've yeah, ended their exactly world. It. That's exactly. I'll do whatever it. you say, dad. Um, so, and, and, you know, I was going to ask you about that uh, new social site. One of the problems we have, and one of the things that I thought was seeing through with the social baron um, speech was this trap that we're in with Facebook where all of our data is there and we have 10, 15 years worth of data there. You've got grandma, auntie M and auntie M. Wow. There's a reference from a long time ago. Uh, you've got grandma and, and uh, Dorothy and, <laughs> and uh everybody on there and it's it's almost a trap in and of itself or a maze that we're stuck in that it's really hard to i remember when robert scoble my good friend was trying to get his wife mary ann scoble who's just wonderful and he's he's like trying to get her to come to google plus and she wouldn't come over and he's like why won't you come over and, and she's like because you know grandma and annie and you know everybody's here on facebook and so trying to extricate ourselves from, you know, Facebook and go, we're just going to take our ball and leave is a whole lot harder. And I think Mark knows that and the, and the board of directors at Facebook, I think they know that. Um, and that's, that's the conundrum, yeah. um, you know, and it reminded me of Dr. Seuss's the Lorax, uh, where there was this phrase toward the end, uh, where, where the Lorax said, unless, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, Nothing's ever going to get better. No. It's not. And somebody's got to make the first move. Somebody's got to tear themselves away and start to bring other people along. Um, and, and you know what? It may be that Facebook just dies out. As their population ages, the people will start to go to some other platform. But most of the people joining are pretty young, so it may take us. <laughs> I know. I know. What are we in for until then? I don't know. I'm probably not, I'm probably not long for this life. So maybe it's well, 20 years, maybe. Um, so, I mean, what do we do? Uh, I, and when I talked to you yesterday, you know, my friend, I think, I, I'm not sure if you were friends with Mike Elgin. Um, but, uh, Mike was really big on social media and Google plus. Um, and you know, Mike, uh, finally just declared, you know, I'm taking my ball and going home. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, uh, is that a Cartman reference? Screw days, I'm leaving. Um, and, uh, and he left Facebook. And so I pondered, well, what do we have to do? Do we all have to just walk off of Facebook one day like we talked about? Or is maybe there a way to use the power of their platform against them? Like a lot of my posts aren't so much emotional as they are educational. Like I'm trying to share the word. I'm trying to pass yeah. the word around. Uh, someone on my Facebook post mentioned to me the other day, they go, I'm getting more news from Chris than I'm getting from CNN, um, which is fine with me. Um, and so, uh, and sometimes I throw in a little motion because you know, that's how you got to drive it to get, to get things. But you know, you're trying, I'm also using it as a way to stand in the mob of holding up the sign. To me, it's the, it's the virtual mob of the March holding up the sign that if enough people say we're sick as hell and we're not going to take it anymore maybe Zuckerberg might change. But of course the grand irony is I'm posting content on something that's being used against me. So, you know, on one hand, Mark's sitting there going, he ate the cheese. <laughs> Cha -ching. 
Um, uh, and then on the other hand, demanding change. So uh, do we strike in front of the, in front of the place that's uh, giving us poor employment, trying to get a change, or do we go get a job someplace else? I think the only under the, the only language they understand at this point is is eyeballs, attention, and and money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they don't understand the plaintive plea. Uh, they certainly don't give a lot of um, uh, fuel to uh, the, the you know the good stuff. You know, like, like we've mentioned before, the stuff that sells, the stuff that gains eyeballs is the controversial stuff, is the Drama. hatred, it's the stuff that angers people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a sad state of, of uh, human nature, but there we are. Yeah. Um, and it recently came out that they've got, uh, there's a few white nationalist uh, groups still operating on Facebook. And I remember, I haven't gone in it for a long time, but I used to pop in it just every, just to do a dipstick. Um, and I remember going to the deplorables groups. And I don't think up until that time I'd ever seen so much racism, uh, xenophobia, hate. Um, I mean, I was just astounded as to how, you know, I think we all kind of lived in this utopia during Obama that we all came towards a societal agreement. I guess there were some people that were being pushed into PC that didn't want to be, that held that in the closet. But, you know, to wake up one day and see that on the Facebook or like most of us, when we saw those torches being carried in Charlottesville, and like, where the hell did this come from? Right. Um, I remember a lot of my friends when Trump was first elected, the day he took office, the uh, Southern Law uh, Poverty Center um, started tracking the hate. We started seeing the postings, and my gay friends had their cars um, uh, vandalized, and uh, one of my friends, who ironically was a was a Muslim from uh, the country that we went and saved in Iraq, and I always forget the name of it, um, but it was the country that Iraq invaded, and we went in and and took the country back. We we fought a war of these guys. Um, she was literally thrown out of an Uber cab and called the N word and other um, uh, negativities, uh, usually attributed towards African Americans. Uh, but she was, you know, she was Muslim from, from, uh, Eastern country. She wasn't even, but that was how, that was how ugly the racism was that had been held in this closet that got thrust forward. Um, and you know, we, and we've seen an outpouring the Southern Poverty Law Centers kept track of all this hate, the rise of these hate groups. And, and, uh, so yeah, I'm just, so uh, fortunately we've seen some of it cut back the Richard Spencer's of the world, you know, they've been kicked off of platforms. They've told they've more and more had their voices taken away, but it seems like Facebook seems to be the one, uh, platform that, that kind of wants to let it roll and pl- still play both sides. Well, let, let's not forget that the, the commander in chief is tweeting that, uh, his opposition is human scum over on Twitter. <laughs> Which is a phrase that Hitler and Stalin have used in mm-hmm. the past, particularly uh, with respect to uh, to Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't bode too well. So, and and now you get into a debate about well, what's appropriate to allow the President of the United States to say because mm-hmm. it, it is of natural national interest or or, or newsworthy mm-hmm. versus you know where do you draw the line there and say he's actually promulgating hate speech and is promoting this kind of behavior that you just outlined yeah. uh, we've seen the rise of for the past three years so yeah. again there, there's no easy answer here yeah. uh, it, it's not cut and dried um, but we need to we need to really think about this seriously and have this debate and you know maybe Twitter does need to hold some people to account you know there was um, 
<laughs> there was a thing where Twitter threatened to clamp down on hate speech. And a lot of the GOP in that instance yeah. said, well, if you do that, then a lot of our content is going to get wiped away. And again, I go back to my Jim Carrey thing, you know, <laughs> then don't speak like a, don't, don't use hate speech. Don't, don't speak like, speech. A, like a white nationalist or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, I mean, and this is this is how genocide begins. This is how fascism begins. Yeah. The dehumanization of each other, regardless of race, regardless of religion, whatever it was. In Hitler's case, it was the Jews, um, and and technically, actually, in Hitler's case, it was the Aryan race. So it was pretty much anyone who wasn't, uh, you know, white, light skin color and blonde hair, uh, which was weird because he didn't have any of that. Uh, but uh, he wasn't spectacular in look. I mean, seriously, you look at Hitler and you're like, yeah, you're not the genetic top of the heap there, buddy, little man. Um, but, uh, but you know, that's how these things work. I guess that's the grand irony of the ugliness of it. But, uh, you know, it's it, this dehumanization of each other, uh, this part where we, we don't see each other as Americans. And, and yeah, I mean, you and I, people who studied history and, and have an education, even though I didn't go to college, but have an education of seeing the world and, and how it works. It's interesting to me. I grew up reading a lot of the books. You know, I knew I was dumb and I knew I didn't have a good education. I grew up poor. Um, but I knew I needed to educate myself. So I read a lot of books and I read a lot of Kennedy books. Uh, I read a lot of books about the Marshall Plan and how we work so hard. Uh, and spent so much money and and did things to try and spread capitalism around the world, and now you just see all that disappearing and just being thrown away. And you're like, the blood of patriots were put on the beaches of Normandy for the spread of capitalism, and now we're just right now. He's talking about pulling out of NATO. <laughs> you can imagine if that happens. But uh, so, do we need to leave social media? Do we all need to get up and leave, or do we need to? is there some way we can use the power of their amplification to speak up and, and, and uh, come together as, uh, in unity and say, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. And you're going to change your thing. Do we have to pass new laws that give them, I mean, they, they have less regulations than the MPAA for movies. Uh, you have to regulate uh, video games with uh, a adult rating um, there are certain websites that I can't get onto without claiming I'm 18. You know, we have the, we have the pop podcast. There's a lot of different vendors that we invite to come on the pop pop business podcast, talk about, uh, investing in marijuana and the, the business of it, if you will. And so a lot of their websites I go on to, and, you know, I have to say that I'm 18, uh, yet yeah, on Facebook, I can, you know, anybody can get on there. Technically there's supposed to be a rule. You can't account, uh, according to federal standards of, you know, unless you're 13 years or older, but we recently saw that TikTok just let that thing run um, and let everybody on the platform and they end up with like, what was it, half a million dollar fine or something like that. But do we just need to create tougher laws to regulate these guys? Well, I, I think um, they definitely need to be regulated in some form. Uh, mm -hmm. and they're not going to self-regulate. You know, that, that was pretty clear from, <laughs> from, from, from what we've seen and certainly what Sasha Baron Cohen said in his speech. They uh -huh. won't self-regulate, so they need to be pushed. Um, I think that's part of it. I think if, you know, folks have always been good about starting a movement and trying to get things kept to catch on. Um, it just needs to be focused. You know, I, I think right now it's too big and broad and, and um, not granular enough for people to understand. We need to take one thing at a time, you know, and figure out what within that uh, needs addressing. 
Uh, and the other thing is if we can just start to commit to um, personally uh, to, to being less uh, spiteful, cynical, um, uh, snarky mm-hmm. online and trying to do things that are kind and uplifting and motivating other people and encouraging other people. Um, you know, it starts one person at a time. And, and I know it sounds kind of corny and I know it's, it sounds like it may take a long time as a result, but we have to start somewhere. You know, the Lorax knew. Yeah. And it, it, it begins with us. I mean, it takes a village, but it begins with us. I mean, everybody has to make a decision. Uh, it harkens back to some of the things I liked uh, the Bobby Kenny said in his speech in South Africa, where he talked about each of us uh, has an impact on life and we create a ripple of effect that uh, can tear down the greatest walls of adversity. Uh, it's a wonderful quote, and I can't remember exactly off the top of my head in my old age, but I used to have it down. But but each of us will be judged and will ultimately judge ourselves on the difference we make in the world and the difference we make in society. I remember one time I had somebody trolling just some real ugly stuff that was kind of out of left field, like, a lot of times when people call me an asshole on social media, I'm like, so what's your point? Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, he was, he was trolling me with something that was like, you're just like, is that really your choice of trolling? Like I can give you some better things to troll me with. And, uh, I remember him making the statement I, cause I was, I was popping back at him and just saying, really, are you sure you, that's what you want to run with? And he goes, yeah, this is what Twitter is. It's, it's the troll platform. That's what we all do. We troll on here. And so I had a little back and forth with him. I think it's saved somewhere. And I said to him, I says, no, that's not the purpose of Twitter and social media. We're not supposed to sit and be snarky and just troll each other and be ugly. There's a huge educational platform here, a way to build great relationships, get to know people better, become smarter in of ourselves. And it was really interesting in their conversation we had on Twitter, he changed and he went, wow, oh, okay, I never thought of the bigger picture and and thanks for sharing that with me. And, and, and it turned from a negative, ugly trolling situation to hopefully um, we we're both the better for it. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of how it goes with the, yeah. you know, changing the world one, one step at a time, one handshake at a time and one hug at a time, I suppose. You know, um, just as a kind of a, an IRL example, if I may, um, occasionally I may have, made a stupid turn uh, in my car, cut somebody off accidentally. I think we all have, and you feel bad about it. Well, sometimes you get, you get, you get somebody that, you know, rolls up next to you at the stoplight and rolls down their window and starts screaming at you, you know, of what an idiot you were. And in, in those situations, I always go, what? And I make them repeat it louder. And I go, what? And they do it again. And I go, And then they go off and, you know, they've either, they've either gotten the anger out of their system or they feel foolish for exactly what they've done. And I haven't done anything to get engaged in it. I just kind of highlight the idiocy that's going on here, you know, the the trolling. And just like, are you sure you really want to say that? My dad used to have this interesting way of dealing with uh, people that would flip out and do stuff like that. And he, he had kind of a soft tone and he had a manner about him that was very Christ-like. Um, I'm not saying my dad was Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form, but in his older age, he, he kind of started to embellish that. And a lot of people would compare him to that. But he would, he would have this thing where he'd go up and he'd put his hand on their shoulder and he'd be like, 
someone must have really hurt you or something really happened to you. What, what made, what made you this way? What, what was it? And he would have people break down and cry. They go from being angry and yelling and screaming and they would break down and cry. That's exactly, that's exactly it. You know, I, um, I, I think of Mr. Rogers in oh, yeah. cases, you know, one of the kindest people out there, um, who exhibits patience and, uh, empathy and to say to somebody who's angry like that, to say, you know, you must be really hurting right now, you know, um, acknowledging that and, and getting them to open up a little bit. I think there's a lot to that. Yeah. And I, I went through the same phase. I remember, uh, when my dog was going through cancer for about a year and a half and I was doing hospice care, I was raging on social media. You probably saw that bit about Trump. Um, and, and of course I was pounding the table long before a lot of people were pounding the table because I, I've known people like Trump um, that are business people. I've known them personally as friends. And I, I kind of looked at them as kind of like handicapped cases where I just went, you're just stupid. I'm just going to love you because you're, you have a problem. Um, but eventually I had to cut those people out of my life because they, they're just toxic. But, uh, you know, for, so for a long time I was hurting and angry over my dog. And so I was ranting on social media about, uh, Trump and everything. And, and fortunately now I was right, but there were a lot of times where I was a little too jacked up emotionally and it was because something else was eating at me and, and I was dealing with it. And I think, I think we all have that, but I think sometimes we, we see these platforms as, like you say, they're the they're the platforms for being snarky and smart and smacking each other around. And, and in, 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 in a lot of ways, they're kind of like, you know, I used to read about road rage and why people got so angry in the cars. Cause I have that problem too. <laughs> and we feel that we're insulated in our vehicle. Like if you or I met on the street, we wouldn't say some of the ugly things that, you know, people say to each other on social media face to face, probably because one of us would end up beating the other senseless. Um, probably you, cause you're in better shape than me. Um, you beating me, that is, um, I don't know why I'm inciting that Scott Monty would ever lead to violence, but, uh, I, I don't think you ever would. You're, you're much too cerebral for that. Um, but, uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, uh, but no, I mean, we wouldn't say things face to face and in the car we're known for doing that being very ugly, but I think social media gives us that same vehicle where Absolutely. we can be very ugly because we're insulated and protected that we would never say to another human being face to face. That's exactly although, right. Although I don't know, I'm a real jerk in person out here. <laughs> That's just me. Um, but you think about it. I mean, we all have a backstory. Mm-hmm. We have, we have something and whether it's a trauma we experienced in childhood, whether the, it's the way we were raised, whether it's something we experienced this morning, uh, you know, somebody might have gotten fired or spilled coffee on themselves on the commute on the way to work or yelled at their kid or whatever. You don't know what somebody's backstory is when they come to a situation like that. And and good old Fred Rogers, right? And I'll 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 quote from uh the world according to Fred Rogers right here. Um I just found this quote this morning. He said, um There's a a quote he likes from The Little Prince, and it's, what's essential is invisible to the eyes. Mm -hmm. You can't see everything, and there's so much going on within every single human being that it's dangerous to make assumptions like that. Mm -hmm. So isn't it better to just show up 
with kindness and assuming that people have the best of intentions rather than assuming that they're trying like they're out to get you or that they've got negative purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes people, that's been one of the hardest things that I've had to learn is that we're all on a journey and uh, some people are on their journey and I'm on my journey and, and my, my trajectory is nowhere near perfect. And most people are going through the same thing. Um, you know, maybe I, we're kind of delving into psychology here. Maybe Twitter should change the uh, question of what's happening that prompts you to put in your status to uh, who made you feel this way? Or <laughs> what did your mom do to you as a child? Or tell me something good about yourself. Hey, yeah. there's a good, I love that, Scott. That's awesome. Tell me something positive. Tell me something good. And maybe that's what we need, we need to spread is more of the goodness in the world. Um, you know, on one hand, I, I've been challenged by that whole concept, though. Do I need to post more puppy pictures and feel-good memes and all that kind of crap? Or do we need to look the dragon in the mouth? Um, one of my business acumens for my companies were I always want to look the dragon in the mouth. And I always want to know how dark it can get and how, how we can deal with the business aspects of decisions we made so that we know what the issues are going to be before they cross our desk, you know, fully on fire. <laughs> you, know, you want to look around and go, where should we put the smoke alarm detectors first <laughs> before, before the fire burns your house down? And so, um, so it's really hard for me, you know, do I, do I put up feel good whatevers? And, and I do have friends that they're in the see no evil, hear no evil, uh, speak no evil mode where, uh, they have trouble dealing with the hatred in politics and stuff like that. Uh, and you're like, well, is that going to contribute to a better world? Putting up puppy dog, um, puppy tail photos and, you know, all that sort of good stuff. Or do we need to look at what's happening? You know, uh, I think a lot about what happened with the Jews. Some of my friends from Germany that come over here and visit fairly regularly, you know, they've told me about the stones, the stepping stones that are in Germany and the reminders they do in their schools that force people to learn about the, uh, what the Nazis did, how they did it, what led to it, all the things that are supposed to be designed to keep them from walking back down that path again, because they did start two world wars. <laughs> you got to keep your eye on those guys. I love my German friends. But, you know, um, they talk about all these different reminders they had to keep them from going down that way. So they, they spend a lot of time looking the dragon in the eye. But ironically... There now is a huge amount of rise of white nationalism in Germany. And these are places where if you do the high Hitler symbol, you'll go to jail. They'll arrest you, even if you're an American citizen. Um, you know, they have certain laws that there are certain things and symbols you can't use. But even then, with that sort of prevention going on, they're giving rise to uh, hate and bigotry again. It's crazy. Great. Well, you think we've solved all the problems of the world, Chris? No, man. We just created more. So I don't know. <laughs> Damn it, Scott. I was expecting oh, wow. you to have the answers. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, Scott, well, no. Um, but anyway, I've loved having you on, Scott, and you're always welcome to be on the show. I, I honestly mean that. You're one of, I don't know, five respected, maybe 10. Um, sorry, you're going down the list now. Uh, no, you're not. You're, you're in the top five. I'm just saying that the, there might be more, but you're, you're one of the people that I've always respected the way they think and how they think it and how they uh, promote it and communicate it. Um, you're one of those people that I go, I wish I was smart as they are. <laughs> um, and uh, so I love the stuff you're putting out at Patreon. I kind of like the idea. I've tried Patreon several times to launch 
my sort of thing along the same veins and I just never have either uh, put my shoulder into it or gotten the traction. So I'm glad you are. The Lorax thing you posted was brilliant. Thank you. Um, it might be a little cerebral above my brain. I was, I was trying to read it and I'm, and it's Dr. Seuss format. So, you know, I can't even, I can't even put my head around that. <laughs> Tells you where my education level is. Uh, but uh, you're doing wonderful things and I just appreciate everything you do, Scott. And I'm glad you finally came on the show. Um, give us some of your plugs so people can go check them out and all that good stuff. Thanks, Chris. Well, you're very kind in your praise. and I, I Don't tell anyone you'll you ruin did. my image. Oh, come on. Yeah. Um, you're doing the kindness thing, one one guest at a time. Uh, <laughs> folks can find me at scottmonte.com. Uh, that's the easiest way to go about it. You can sign up for the Timeless and Timely newsletter there. And uh, I am Scott Monty on all of the major social networks. So uh, feel free to connect with me however you like. Awesome sauce. Thanks for being on the show, Scott. Thanks to my audience for tuning in. Hopefully you guys learned a whole mess of stuff. And if you didn't, maybe you have more questions. And that's good. A whole lot of more ideas you can work with. One of the most important things you can learn in life is more questions. And if you get a chance, look up uh, Bobby Kennedy's speech in South Africa. It's really moving. Um, it talks about each of us can make a difference in this world and create ripples of hope that can tear down the highest walls of oppression, resistance, and hate. And uh, maybe go listen to some John Lennon. Imagine, that's one of my favorite songs to listen to. I think if, if anything I would want in the world is to have that song uh, be uh, bring all of humanity together as one and uh, we can all just be human beings to each other and oppo- as opposed to all this you know, objective, subjective crap that we have to put up with. <laughs> So there's that. Uh, go to the ecvpn.com and Chris Foss Podcast Network.com. You can subscribe to all eight podcasts there. We love you as an audience. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.